Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin in the air conditioning for this edition of A Reason for Hope. If you'd like to send us your Bible questions, they won't have comments, but we will. And hopefully, in addressing your sincere Bible questions, we will dedicate the next hour for clarifying those very topics. Note the standard for our questions is that they are sincere. You want to hear the answer. They are about the Bible and the substance of the answer, not just the question. And, of course, that they are in the form of a question. You get Jeopardy points for that. If you want to send us your questions, you can do so by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you want to know how that's spelt, you can join us on our church website website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and we'll have it at the bottom of the screen in a banner as we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, or Pacific, if you're not on Daylight Savings. We don't like that here in Arizona. See, again, the reference to the air conditioner. If you want to also send us questions by social media, uh, Facebook's kind of on the outs right now, but we'll mention it anyway. Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is our Facebook page. If you give us a like, and we aren't being muted for arbitrary uh, topics like the ones we're going to be discussing here today, feel free to join us if you would like to. However, I can't recommend it since we are currently in a tug of war regarding us uh, being able to play sound in ways and on topics that they don't necessarily like. Also on YouTube, they aren't uh, throwing a fit yet, but don't cross your fingers. YouTube is a reason for hope. We'll see how long we can hold our place on those platforms. If you are familiar with them, you can always join us and wait for the moments for the censorship to die down. But note, they can't ban us on our own platform yet, so we encourage you all to join us there, which once again is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab. You'll be sent to our streaming page, ccftucson.online.church. You can bookmark or uh, note in a favorite, either of those pages, and you'll be able to engage with us face-to-face, and at the right-hand side of the screen, leave comments just like you would on our YouTube stream and on Facebook. But uh, alongside your prayers and us remaining faithful and not getting kicked off more than usual, we also want to take some time to pray and make sure God speaks more than we do, which is the norm. I hope, on this broadcast. So why don't we do that? We'll start with our apologetics topic and then get to your questions. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of not only representing your heart, but your word, and we ask that both would be heard and seen here today. Continue a work in both of our hearts that not only love you, but want to share that love with others, that you would give us grace, you would make give us our words not only to be gracious, but seasoned with salt, and that as we have the opportunity to speak truth, that it would be done so in love, your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you had an interesting conversation with uh, one of those awful pro-lifers, and that I think is going to set the tone for the broadcast going forward. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the conversation, and then we'll I guess, uh, segue right into the topic. <clears throat> yeah, no, it was a really good conversation. I was talking with my buddy who works at Hands of Hope, and uh, I was asking him mainly about 
logistical things. How are things going with their organization? What, we're, what uh, is Hands of Hope as an organization for those listening? Right. So it's a, it's a local ministry. So those of you guys who live outside of the Tucson area, you won't know anything about them. But uh, the local ministry is a crisis pregnancy center. So it offers resources for women who are in a crisis pregnancy. So someone who has a pregnancy that they weren't expecting or don't want, uh, they offer them not only resources and helping them get medical help, uh, finances for that. They also help them make the decision to hopefully preserve the life of their unborn child and to also get them in touch with people that would help them adopt their child and things like that. So a very, very useful organization. And there are ones just like it all over the country. Yeah, uh, um, follow the graffiti or the uh, firebombed buildings. You usually find them. Morbid joke, but we're trying to be lighthearted. Yeah, yeah so very, very good. And uh, I said this last time, Figure out whatever organization that you have locally in your own area and try at this time, if you live in the United States, to give resources and ask them how you can help them because they're all at this point kind of not not necessarily scrambling, but they're really trying to figure out how, how this is going to affect their ministry. Some of them, it won't affect much. So like, for instance, crisis pregnancy centers that exist in California, California is not changing their policy, so it's not going to do anything. But with places like Arizona, I was talking to him and things are really in the air in Arizona. I, I wanted to figure out what kind of clarity he could give me. And he gave me uh, not as much clarity as I would like, because no one has any clarity on this issue. Uh, so in Arizona, we have a snapback policy that was instituted before Roe versus Wade that outlaws all abortions. But we also recently passed a 15 week ban. And that just passed last month, I believe. So there's a lot of disunity about which one people are going to follow. Is it going to be the 15 week or is it going to be the outright ban on abortion? The attorney general just last week said, no, it's the outright ban. But then it was just contested, I think, yesterday. So there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of differences. But as of right now, according to him, no abortions are being performed in Tucson. So these centers have stopped their abortion policies until there could be more clarity. So they're seeing a huge increase in women coming in, needing help and needing resources. So very, very good, very positive that this is happening. And the hope is as well <laughs> that this is a trend that exists internationally, obviously maybe not in Sharia-dominated countries, but certainly in Europe and various other areas within and around North America. Canada, however, has, uh, I guess, iffy policies on the preservation of these businesses and, of course, uh, businesses, their charities, but also of Mexico and Central America. It depends where you are. The point, though, being made is if you just search up Crisis Pregnancy Center and local, you will find plenty of organizations that are built around not only providing, well, let's just uh, guess take it from the top. What are some of the things a Crisis Pregnancy Center provides? Uh, yeah. And like I said, very important to figure this out. So before I answer your question, I'm not dodging it, uh, but very important to figure this out. I don't because, know why you would. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not controversial. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we talked about is a great need that he has is he's actually in charge of messaging for the center. And he's fighting a lot of the propaganda that's been lobbied towards crisis pregnancy centers, especially recently. So what Planned Parenthood will say about crisis pregnancy centers is, oh, these people are just interested in not having you have an abortion, but they're not going to provide you with any resources. They're just kind of guilting you into not aborting your child 
and therefore they don't actually care about you. They're not going to provide you with any resources. We're the ones that provide you with resources. The opposite is actually true. So as um, is usually the case with stuff you hear on the TV and online. Yeah, absolutely. So Planned Parenthood, even though they technically and on paper provide resources for women outside of abortion, in reality, they really don't. That's not their focus. It's not their aim. They make their money primarily through abortions. So I'm not saying call them up and ask if they can give you a free uh, monogram. Yeah. Just see how well that goes. <laughs> Absolutely. So th- these places are actually providing those resources for women. So they will provide sonograms for free Sonic. to help women see their unborn children and to be able to make a more uh, informed decision about what they want to do moving forward. And, and by the way, this is actually the norm in a lot of European countries. So in a lot of European countries, you do have to get a sonogram before you make the decision to abort. And you have to have a waiting period and things like that. So they provide you with a lot of resources. And so it's America that's actually an outlier in the westernized world about our uh, the proliferation of abortion and the way that we look at it. But at any rate, that's what these organizations do. They provide not only the means for women to better make choices regarding their unborn child, but they also provide them with a lot of resources. So they help them if you don't have insurance, for instance, they'll help you get in touch with different organizations, charities, ministries, and the like to get you insured, to get you into a place where you can medically afford the process of pregnancy, which is expensive, right? I'm going through it right now with my wife. It is pricey for sure. And then also to help you if you don't if you don't have the uh, ability to keep your child to put you in touch with people that will help you adopt your child into a home that you trust and feel secure with so these are all the resources that crisis pregnancy centers offer they're really amazing they're really uh, beautiful and uh, one of the big things that we as christians can do in this time is point people towards these resources. Just if you have friends and family members that are just like oh christians don't care christian just encourage them just say hey just go on their site listen to the stories of the women that they've helped and tell me like do these people care because interestingly people who work at crisis pregnancy centers some of them aren't even christian and some of them do lean more politically left which is interesting so you, there are actually people on the left that would more agree with some of their socioeconomic policies of the people that work at crisis pregnancy centers because again their main focus is we want to preserve the lives, the unborn lives of the women who are there. And the way, the best way to do that politically is debatable. Uh, I have pretty strong feelings, but I'm willing to have conversations with people across the aisle that disagree with me on those things. But at any rate, uh, point people towards their resources. Talk to them about what resources are being offered. And maybe even try to uh, conversate. Uh, contact these organizations and ask them, man, what kind of resource can I give you? If you work at a church, if you're aligned with a church, talk to these organizations, ask them like, hey, how can we support you guys? And how can you guys support us? You know, what are the things that you could bring into our ministry that will help uh, people? And this leads to the next point. And the main point that he was trying to drive home with me is that during this time now more than ever, churches really need to focus not just on our argumentations for why we are pro-life, but also the restoration of women who have already made the opposite decision. Which is mm-hmm. key. Yeah, which is very, very key, because uh, the latest statistic that he was quoting me is one in four women will have an abortion at a certain point. Now, an interesting thing about that is years ago, they started this organization called uh, Shout Your Abortion. And it's still going. It still exists. But it was a place or a venue where women can go and shout their abortion. They can brag about how amazing their abortion was and how it changed their life for the better and things like that. And you could look up some of these stories on your own time if you want. But what he pointed out to me, and this is very, very true, 
is that the vast majority of people in this country don't think that way towards abortion. Even people who are pro-choice find that really disturbing because safe, legal, and rare, the old Clinton line back in the 90s, is actually the way that most people think about abortion. It should be safe, it should be legal, and it should be rare. It should not be happening in large numbers because it is something that's morally, at least morally ambiguous, if not morally detestable. So Difficult um, would probably be the best word. Yeah, it would be a better word for sure. But because of how widespread abortion is, most people, especially in pro-life camps, don't feel the comfortability to be able to talk about it if they have made that decision down the road. So there's a couple things I wanna clarify real quick. And then offer uh, hope and restoration for those who are listening who maybe have family members or maybe are in a position where you have made that choice in your life. The first thing that I want to point out has to do with this idea of shame. So one of the most uh, internal and difficult emotions that mankind has had to deal with is our difficulty with shame. Uh, It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve would literally rather sew fig leaves together and put them over their genitals than actually be open and transparent with God and each other. So, and those of you guys who know anything about fig leaves knows that that's not exactly the most comfortable solution to your shame. But that's what humanity does. We are terrified of being called out. We are terrified of having the spotlight put upon us and our decisions. And so we like to obfuscate. We like to cover over. We like to not talk about it. And the church is no stranger to that. One of the main things that I'm a part of is running light ministry that tries to bring clarity and light to the issue of sexual immorality. So the people who are struggling in it can get the help that they need to get out of that lifestyle because the vast majority of people who are struggling in the church don't want to be there. They're not in there because they want to be. They're in there because they don't know how to get out, and they're too ashamed to talk about what they're struggling with and how to better communicate with it to the church staff and those that they might be hurting with their sin. So uh, that's what we try to offer. This falls under the same category. There's a lot of shame oriented towards this issue where some women would listen to the pro-life arguments and they would follow it down the logical road and they would say, well, if that's the case, doesn't that mean that all pro-life people believe that I committed murder? Now, what, what would we say to something like that? Well, yes, but just like any other sin, when we're talking about the issue of any sin, any missing of the mark, any deviation between our nature and God, the whole reason any of these things are pointed out is because, and this is key, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The book of Romans emphasizes this whole argument in that the law, that is the knowledge of sin, was a tutor, literally a steward or an accompaniment, a you, you can note just the tutor to the person to see you through the test, but think like a uh, bodyguard, a childhood butler or something like that. Someone who would give you the necessary instruction and training to get you to where the Father wants you to go in life. And if that's then the purpose of the law, then the end result, the conclusion, shouldn't be shame, it's to seek a solution. If I have read on my ledger, to quote uh, Black Widow from Age of Ultron, if I have something that is ultimately between me and God that needs to be resolved, I first ask, is there anything I can do, and is there anything that he has done? And the answer is no to the first, but yes to the second, at least nothing meaningful in the first. Not that people don't attempt, but this is the point that's being made. If I go to the Bible, and I ask, what should I do? Where are the answers in here? I'm not going to get it, because the Bible is emphasizing thought, not just giving you a blow-by-blow instruction of don't do this, don't do that, go there, don't go there. There are certainly moral foundations, 
like Exodus 20, for instance, and not committing murder. But that law in of itself not only exists for the sake of a functional society, but the often reality is every single civilization we found is just delaying the reality that we live in a lawless state, that we are separated from God. So if I come to the Bible with the assumption that I'm all right, let's see if this agrees with me or not, then I'm going to be disappointed, I'm going to be ashamed. If I come to the Bible recognizing I want to know about God and what he thinks about me. Yes, I'm going to find out there are things wrong with me, but those things that have separated me from God have been dealt with in a legal sense and in a moral sense. And that's why there's such a key distinction between a Christian and Christianity. A Christian can act in any number of ways. They could make you feel ashamed and only give you half the story. They can comfort you and make you feel like essentially the shout your abortion 2.0 and say, oh, God loves you and everything that you did, he, he, he understands, he, he knows everything, but leaving out the moral obligation. The whole point of the gospel is to understand all of us in everything have fallen short of God's glory in some way. And if I take that and internalize it and don't do anything with it, the natural result is shame. But if on the other hand I ask, what can be done about this? Is there a God out there that cares about me? Is that Has God forsaken me? Am I, uh, to quote Amy Lee from uh, the song Tourniquet, am I too lost to be saved? Well, the answer is no. In fact, the one whose idea was it to save you when you were at your worst, whether that's in having an abortion, whether that's in looking up pornography, whether that's in cheating on your spouse, whether that's in anything. The fact of the matter is we're all sinners. And if the conversation stops there, yes, you'll be ashamed, but it doesn't. The whole message of the gospel is, but there is not only restoration in heart, mind, and soul to God, but through the Holy Spirit, you can not only be, and this is what we'd emphasize to those who've had abortions, rejoined the child whose life you ended. We need to acknowledge that reality. But also, and this is just as key, not only in the child's life ending, but you having a new life, which is what they and the one they're with would want. That would be the approach if we're going to emphasize honesty. Yeah, a couple of clarifications real quick. Uh, so when we say that someone who has had an abortion has committed murder, we don't mean it in the same way that someone, like if I were to go out and actually murder somebody. Now, the reason why is because there is a level of, there's a degree of difference when it comes to behavior and what we understand about a behavior. So for instance, if you look back at the amount of people throughout world history that have owned slaves, quite a big number. And by quite a big number, I mean every society ever until uh, European society started to wipe it out. And by the way, it's still not wiped out in parts of the Middle East, Africa, and India. So very important to understand that there was widespread slave holding. And when I'm saying slave holding, some of it wasn't what we would understand as slave holding, but some, a lot of it was chattel slavery, right? Actually owning a person as a piece of possession, uh, which is they really, really to serve a purpose. And because... Uh, we hadn't invented farm equipment yet, then just dominating other people groups served that same goal. Right. So I would judge someone differently in a society that existed before or maybe even now that doesn't outlaw slavery and doesn't see it the way that we do. I would judge them very differently than someone in America today kidnapping someone and turning them into a slave. 
because there is a cultural perspective that shifts and therefore they're held to a higher account in my mind and as well as your mind. Uh, same, same would be true with things like polygamy. You know, why isn't David just blown out of the water by God for doing such a horrendous and evil sin like polygamy? Well, it's because David came from a culture that had a lot of polygamy, right? That was kind of the norm. It wasn't, he would have been the outlier if he didn't, if he wasn't a polygamist as a king in that society. So no, it was still written in scripture that that was wrong. Exactly. He knew and had a written copy of Deuteronomy where it notes not to multiply wise. But God yourself. is going to judge him a little bit differently than someone. So again, God's not going to compromise his law and say, hey, what you did was good. He will judge him, and he does. But he's also not going to judge him as severely as someone who lives in a culture like ours that summarily rejects polygamy. Some pastors have said, like, well, if David existed in our world today, we wouldn't allow him in our church. It's true and it isn't, right? It's true in the sense that if I hold someone that lived, you know, over two millennia ago in a completely different continent and completely different culture and country to the standards of today, yes, I wouldn't let him in our church. But if David were to live today, given the behaviors that he uh, accomplished during his life, I don't believe he would be a polygamist, right? So if he grew up in a culture that doesn't allow it and doesn't allay it in the way that his did, I don't think he would have made those same mistakes. And we could see that based on the way that he acknowledges his sin and moves away from it at various times in his life. He'd be having a pretty complicated story. I was def- I was married to this girl, Michael, and then I got remarried to this girl named Abigail, and it was all great. God was certainly enabling David to have the sort of things he needed in that regard. But the, the point then being made is just that. When we're talking about someone who can be held accountable for the things that they've known, or is being held accountable for the things they've proactively ignored, mm-hmm. or holding someone accountable for things that have been withheld from them by others. Those are three different types of people. Absolutely. So if I'm dealing with someone who actually believed the lie that what is inside your room is not a human being, that they're not a person, that they're not, that you're basically just getting rid of a clump of cells, it's no big deal. They really believe that they did it. Again, it doesn't negate the wrong of what they've done, but it is a very different crime. I would, uh, uh, I would appraise it very differently than someone actually going out and stabbing someone in the face, right? It's a very, very different type of motive. It's a very, very different type of heart. And therefore, while it still remains sin, it is a different type of sin because of the ignorance and because and it might be willful, uh, it might be intentional, and that depends on the person that you're dealing with, right? So some people might have known full well what they were doing and did it anyway. Then there are other people who may have been lied to, and there are other people who may have been willfully ignorant, meaning that they they just don't care. They just don't care, right? Because it was more convenient for them to believe a particular narrative as opposed to the one that would cause them to want to give life and liberty to their child. So, any rate, uh, that's that's a really complicated issue. And when you go through the process of forgiveness, and this kind of leads to my main point. When you go through the process of forgiveness and you go before God and you very openly and honestly confess these things to him, the Holy Spirit will guide you through this process and help you understand the forgiveness that is that God offers to you. And C.S. Lewis had a really good essay on forgiveness. I don't know if uh, those of you guys who haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. Or uh, on YouTube, they have audio clips of it. Very easy and accessible to, to go through. I think it's like 15 minutes long if you want to listen to it. But in forgiveness, he does talk about how God will help you understand and what are the areas of your actions that are excusable, meaning things that you did totally in ignorance and you really didn't understand what you were doing, and therefore it's excusable? And what are the things that are inexcusable, the things that actually do need to be forgiven? As Sean was alluding to earlier, our society's answer to shame is to take away shame by taking away guilt. 
in other words, saying, well, there is nothing wrong in what you've done, so therefore you don't need forgiveness. God's solution to sin is to introduce guilt and then cover it simultaneously through his son. So that's what we call forgiveness, understanding that I've done something wrong, but Jesus has died in my place and in my stead, and therefore I can be forgiven by him and through what he has done for me, right? That's the gospel. Now, when it comes to alleviating things like trauma, there's a couple ways to look at it. So uh, when him and I were talking today, he brought up the idea of like, well, some people who have abortions, even when they understand that what they did was ending a human life, they actually don't feel very guilty about it. And I said, well, that's, that's very common. And in fact, that's a part of my story as well. So coming back from Afghanistan, I did certain things that are morally reprehensible, I believe. I think some of them are justifiable. Some of the things that we did, we were in war, and we had to make very difficult uh, decisions very rapidly. But some of the things I don't think are very justifiable. I think we actually did evil things. And it was in the context of war, so it's a little bit more understandable, but it's still wrong. And because I have this weird disorder, uh, I don't actually process guilt the way that most people do. It's very easy for me to alleviate guilt upon myself and just be like, ah, oh, I didn't do anything wrong and move on. Now, when you do that, right, if you've done something that is definitively wrong and you don't experience guilt, that's not necessarily a good thing. So as a counselor, I see this often. Where trauma sets in is when my reality is a far enough distance away from my expectations and hopes. So when I have an expectation of reality and a hope of reality that is wildly different than my actual reality, that's where trauma sets in. So for instance, if you were to talk to someone who lives in a very bad area of town in which shootings are kind of the norm, they're not going to be terribly traumatized by shootings that happen around them. They should be because it's not good, but they won't be in the same way that if you took someone from a better area of town and a, and a shooting happened around them, they would be very traumatized by it because their expectations of reality and their hopes of reality are very different than that experience of a shooting. So we saw this in Afghanistan with the little kids, right? Shootings were just the norm, right? They'd be playing one second and then, you know, they would, they would hear the music come on, the, the mosque speakers, they would go hide for a little bit, the shooting would happen, and then they come out and they play again, right? It was just a Thursday forum. It wasn't a big deal at all. Now, again, they should be traumatized by that because that is abnormal behavior. When you incorporate abnormal behavior and you turn it into your norm, you have no desire to change it and you actually will have a bend towards repeating it. So for instance, some people are abused as children and they're not traumatized by it. Unfortunately, what ends up happening, though, is they either allow abuse to happen in their own household. So in other words, they'll marry someone that is abusive to their own kids and they won't do anything about it because that's their norm. Or they might actually get into a relationship with someone that abuses them. And again, since it's their norm, while they're not traumatized by the abuse, they have normalized it, which may in a lot of ways be worse. So if someone receives an abortion and they're not traumatized by it, that's OK. That just means that they've convinced themselves that it's normal. Now. One of the ways that God's going to work on them, and this will take time, it's not my role as a pastor or a counselor to make someone feel guilty, right? That is the role of the Holy Spirit, right? That is what he is intended to do. But I can talk to someone and help them understand exactly why the Bible says something is wrong and just encourage them to pray about it. Be like, hey, this is what the Word says. Would you pray about this with God and walk through it with him? And when I started doing that with the stuff that I had done in Afghanistan, God allowed me to walk through that necessary guilt and the necessary forgiveness over time. You didn't that was use a, the word shame. Why not? 
That's right, because I didn't actually experience shame, right? So once you experience guilt, it doesn't necessitate shame, right? If you experience guilt and forgiveness simultaneously, it actually alleviates shame. It doesn't move you into a place where you actually feel as though your very existence is a mistake. It moves you into a place where you actually do understand your value in a greater way. Whereas opposed to someone who removes the possibility of guilt and likewise forgiveness, shame will either eventually fill that void or manifest in other ways, which is uh, very prevalent in our society if you look up some of the effects. So just to summarize this before we get out to our questions, obviously we made a distinction between guilt and shame. Obviously, we made a clarification that that abortion is in fact murder, but we also need to make sure we're addressing individuals and they need to be dealt with on a person-by-person and heart-by-heart basis, which is just what these crisis pregnancy centers specialize in, not just in providing the opposite of what they're advertised to be and to do, but especially to provide all the things that people will actually need at those times in their lives. If we can prevent abortions from happening, that is ideal, but that's not always the case. So if you have someone in your life who needs this kind of counsel and support, even if they're in that sort of hard-hearted state and just not really concerned about it at all, give them the opportunity because they may see manifestations of mental irregularity and a need for therapy and counseling. Repression or, you know, uh, a big and common one is that if I'm unhappy, but I've convinced myself that my behavior is justifiable, then I have to ascribe my unhappiness to something else. So possibly you are ascribing your unhappiness to your marriage or to your current kids or to your career, but possibly a good portion of your unhappiness is actually due to a decision that you justified previously in your own heart. So uh, a lot of different psychological problems can come about when you repress things like that. Yeah. So make sure you keep those things in mind. Make sure that we're sensitive, not only to people with where they're at, but also that we aren't so dainty in our approaches that we end up compromising truth. If you're asked questions, you don't have to lie to Mm -hmm. quote again, dark Knight. So the point being made is this, when we are dealing with these issues, there are resources that have been made available that are being proactively demonized by certain people. And that needs to be taken note of. But if on the other hand, we are promoting it, make sure that you are able to check out our work because we could be lying too. Find out firsthand that these people do actually, and by these people, I mean the crisis pregnancy centers, do have the best intense desires, hopes, and actions for women who are going through pregnancies, unplanned or other, or even unwanted at heart. And that is, in fact, what they exist for. They will answer to God for what they're doing. And I look forward to seeing that day because they'll have a lot to be rewarded for. And and by the way, I I don't know if I made this clear, but the crisis pregnancy centers also offer this kind of counseling. So if you have, if you don't have a crisis pregnancy, but you did have one and you chose to abort your child, they will take you through that kind of counseling. So again, even if it's not noticeably affecting your life right now, if that's a part of your story, I would encourage you to just go in and, as Sean said, talk to these people and allow them to kind of work with you on it and to see, is there anything hidden or anything that you haven't really processed correctly? And how can you make that a part of your gospel story with God and find forgiveness from it, because it's very important stuff. Yeah, and again, that's what's going to be most key. You made the point in referencing, we provide counseling at churches, Mm -hmm. but that's in regards to your fellowship with God. We can to a point, because we're trained in these sort of issues, but they specialize in this field. We would always, if 
were worth our salt, recommend you to seek out their professional help as well. So if you know someone or if you are someone that has committed an abortion in the past, note that this isn't the end, that this shouldn't be the end, that there is a difference between guilt and shame. Don't run from the guilt because it will eventually produce shame. But if you embrace the guilt in the light of forgiveness, that is productive. Now, with that all being said, anything more to add? Um, we have a question we received yesterday. It's kind of two questions, but uh, Yari wants to know, how do we know we won't go through the tribulation period? And then there's a follow-up we'll address because it's a different topic in a moment. So Yari, starting, of course, with the view of the end times that we hold to. The tribulation period, for those of you who don't know, it's a basic Christian understanding when the Bible talks about God's ultimate dealings with this world. Obviously, when Jesus died and rose from the dead on the cross, a hundred of the 300 prophecies that were made concerning the Christ, the Messiah, were fulfilled. It doesn't mean that Jesus failed 200. It means that he is just as likely, with every prophecy fulfilled, to keep the follow-through promises he also made. Now, why do I say follow-through? Well, if you talk to an Orthodox Jew, they'd emphasize any promise he didn't keep, he failed. But if you actually read the Bible and note the way Jesus formatted these promises. He addresses the end times in various specific places in the Gospels, which we'll get to in a moment, where he emphasizes that there is an, a level of expectation of Jesus's return that will not be anticipatable. Now, that will be a first key detail in us understanding we won't go through the tribulation, but this is all aside. There are three ballparks that people generally bat in concerning when the pitch is thrown, to follow the baseball analogy, regarding when will the, um, I guess, time of Christ ultimately be a benefit for us. Because if this world is ultimately just headed towards self-destruction, which the Bible rightly predicts, then we don't have much to look forward to until our eventual and potentially gruesome death if we are unfortunate enough to live during this time. So the question is, is there grounds? for there to be a provision, a means of escape for people who believe God's promises. Has God made a promise to keep people out of his wrath, and does the tribulation period itself constitute God's wrath? There are a few steps in there as well that I kind of shoehorned in, but for the sake of time, I'm being brief. The reason why we would believe the tribulation as a whole, the seven-year period described in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27, are all the wrath of God is because we take a literalist approach towards the book of Revelation, in particular Revelation chapters 5 through 19, and believe that that constitutes a chronological and literal description of the tribulation. Now, obviously, Revelation uh, 12, for instance, is very symbolic. 13 is uh, describing and overviewing with heavy Old Testament references the rise of the Antichrist and the impact therein. But as far as our approach to Scripture, and this is what's going to be the first key understanding of this, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense lest you believe in nonsense. That's the idea. If I'm then taking that approach towards the end times, then as I'm reading the book of Revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ, it's going to include that final time of judgment. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, and in Revelation chapter 9, and in Revelation chapter 16, or 15 as well, and Revelation chapter 16, Every time that the plagues that make up the whole of the tribulation are described, it says the day of his wrath has come. 
Now, if that's a constant throughout the whole of the tribulation, the first third, the seal judgments as they're called, in Revelation 6, it concludes with the sixth seal judgment in the world acknowledging the time of the, of the wrath of the Lamb has come. And if you say, well, that's the wrath of the Lamb, not the wrath of God, go sit in the corner. That's not the point. But on the other hand, I take another step and go on continuously into the chapters. I go to the end of the tribulation in Revelation 15, the last salvo of plagues. We'll be discussing this more on Wednesday if you'd like to listen in. The time of this recording, for those of you who are listening later, that will be July 13th, 2022. Back to the segue. Um, Revelation 15 notes that in these bold judgments, the wrath of God is complete. It's very hard to come to that text and say that this is, uh, oh, well, just symbolic or general to the overall state of man. But all that being said, of the three positions that we hold, we hold that literalist approach, that this is describing a time of God's wrath from start to finish. The first salvo of plagues, the last salvo of plagues. So I've verified the first fact. Is the tribulation period a time of God's wrath? Since it's described throughout, and I'm clarifying how I'm approaching the scriptures, that would be the first reason in order for me to ask two follow-up questions before I have an answer. The second approach people take when it comes to the end times is to say, well, there's a period where mankind is handed over to his own devices, and then the wrath of God commences in the Great Tribulation, because Jesus obviously goes into more detail about the abomination of desolation, see Daniel 10 through 11, Matthew 24 through 25, and others, describing that time where we've transitioned from man's basically time of sitting in their own stew, and then the wrath of God, which is where they would then qualify either the end of the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation, where that would fit in, that we wouldn't live through the great tribulation. That would be their comfort. The problem with that is, again, the first issue that I clarified. Jesus said that regarding his return, no man knows the day or the hour. That doesn't mean that no one in history at any time ever won't have a hint or if it's already happened, they're looking back, and suddenly Jesus' words are falsified. No, in anticipation of the event, to the audience Jesus was speaking to, they're not going to know the day or the hour of his return. Their approach is either his return in regards to judgment, which would be false, since the moment the Antichrist signs the seven-year peace accord, you can count to the day when Jesus will return in judgment. But there's another coming of Jesus that we believe in. It's referred to in popular culture. The Left Behind series has most recently popularized it. It's been pretty much consistently talked about throughout the entirety of church history. If you want documentation, check out Dispensationalism Before Darby. I'll uh, happy be happy, rather, to leave a link in the comments if you would like that. Or give us a call, we'll give you a reference for the book. But the point being made is this, they would make that jump and reference and say, oh, well, this is the great tribulation, that is God's wrath, that's what we're going to be spared from. But in anticipation of Jesus' return, there's a second possibility. What we call the rapture of the church would be that provision. That's the second detail I need to ask. Has God made any promises to keep us from his wrath, which we can fairly conclude is, in fact, the whole of the tribulation? If you mince details, then it comes in conflict with this information, and that is, of course, that in 1 Thessalonians chapter, 15, or chapter, 15, chapter 5, it notes that God has not predestined us to to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. For those of you listening, the people of Thessalonica, were they being addressed just everybody on the planet, or specifically, in the first verse, the church 
of Thessalonica, the people who had believed in Jesus' promises. That's the audience to which he's addressing. And also noting the rapture of the church is in the previous chapter, word for word. Other details are provided in 1 Corinthians 15, and some would argue Revelation 6 and verse 1, but I don't, or, or 5 and verse 1, excuse me, but I don't necessarily argue on that point. The point then being made is this. If there's an unanticipatable aspect, then the reality of God's wrath in a justified literal approach to Revelation, I have to clarify these things because people take different approaches, also notes the unanticipatability of Jesus' return. If that's reference to judgment, it's a false statement, no matter which way you slice it, unless you dismiss it entirely. The second option is that what these things are being talked about here, and that have been talked about throughout church history, apart from outright dismissing it as irrelevant, is in fact the whole of the tribulation, that we have been kept from God's wrath. The first question then goes back to this. If I can look to the tribulation as a whole, as a time of God's wrath, and if I can count on promises that Jesus made to keep us from the hour of trial, quoting Revelation chapter 2, uh, they'll come on the whole world. All these things would put together in my mind the real crux of the issue, pun intended, and that is, of course, will we go through the tribulation? In the regards to the rapture and the justification for the pre-tribulation rapture, three things have to be true. One, that the rapture of the church has to be di different from the second coming of Christ, Revelation or 19 style, the battle of Armageddon and so forth. Second, the rapture of the church, as Jesus described it, needs to be what he had in mind when he says, no man knows the day or the hour, unanticipatable to the people who are addressing it. And the third thing that needs to be true is that in the book of Revelation, we see this description of the seven-year period of time as it's written and as it's laid out in the order that we're given. Obviously, context is required for each point. We've been going through Revelation week by week in our Bible study, in our weekly Bible studies here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. You can get more information there or ask point by point here in the comments. We'll be happy to address them. I love the end times. But the point we made is just that. It's the first question, is this even a thing? And I think that we can argue that rationally if these things are true, and I think that's justifiable. Now, will we go through the tribulation? Well, we, if that we, is those who've received the promises of Jesus, who believe the promises of Jesus, even those who don't necessarily believe his promise of the rapture, who would dismiss that, but have salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord, they qualify. That our provision to escape the wrath of God not just involves the hereafter, but also the here and why, which once again involves how has God uh, dealt with his people in the midst of his wrath? That's there this trend throughout Scripture. Well, we look at any time God's wrath has been poured out in a nature-based sense in the Bible. We see Noah's flood, we see Sodom and Gomorrah, we see the exile from Babylon, we note the Assyrians, we can note plenty of examples. Let's just start with the first two. They're in the same book, so we can localize that. Noah's flood, what happened before a single drop of water fell? An ark was built and provided and available to anyone who would listen to Noah's warning that it's going to rain and it's going to flood at a time where it had never rained and it obviously didn't flood. But note that point. If you've seen the Russell Crowe movie that was based on Gnostic heresy, repent. That was available to anyone. And the only ones who listened to those promises were Noah and his family. But there was room for the planet at the time. They didn't take it but the means of provision, the means of escape was provided. Second, with Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened before a single 
I wouldn't say drop of fire, but <laughs> before the nuke fell, so to speak, what was spent doing for an entire day before that took place. Lot and his family were running around the city like chickens with their head cut off, except this gaping wound that used to be a head was capable of talking, telling people, get out of the city, it's going to be destroyed. No one believed him apart from Lot and his two daughters. If you want to know what happened to his wife, ask. But the point being made is this. There's plenty of reasons to come to that conclusion, Yari, that we won't go through the tribulation, but it's not just, well, there's the verse because that's not how you conclude anything when it comes to the Bible, even salvation. If I say, well, where's the verse that it says that you're saved because of what Jesus did on the cross? Well, if you're looking for those words in that order, I'd have to note why Jesus went to the cross. I'd have to note in light of what Jesus has done for the cross. I have to note because of people who've been to heaven, in light of what Jesus has done on the cross, then I can come to conclusions. But if your approach to Scripture is to cross your arms and say, I need more information, well, that's a Pringle slogan, not Scripture. If on the other hand, you can support these things in a consistent manner, albeit a complicated one, but that's why the end times is noted categorically as the end, not just because of the chronological order of events, but because this requires a complete understanding of Scripture, that would be the reason why we would hold to a pre-tribulation rapture view that we won't go through any of the tribulation. I know it doesn't mean that we'll be free from any hardship in this life. No, that there have been many times in history where people have been subjected to the will of man very frequently. But if we rightly understand the tribulation period, the seven-year last days period of time where God is judging this world entirely as the wrath of God, there are scriptures that fly in the face of that being possible to be endured by his people in anticipation of it. It is difficult for us to reconcile other aspects of Scripture that make it very plain that other things also need to be true, like, for instance, if it was in the halfway point or the end, it would be an uh, would be anticipatable, and you have to challenge interpretations to the point where the text is nonsensical, and on it goes. I- I've talked for too long, but I just want to be clear. Point being made, Yari, in after all that, there's the long answer, the short answer. No, we won't go through the tribulation, and I have reasons to believe that. Uh, anything more to add before we get to the second half of his question? Uh, he wants to know if the Bible addresses the issue of global warming, climate change, climate alteration, or whatever they're calling it today. No. All right. <laughs> uh, anything more to add, or can we just end on that humor? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, pr- I, really, there's not much more to add. I mean, th- the Bible does describe things in the book of Revelation that some have taken to be a result of climate change, but uh, there's nothing in the text to suggest that that's the cause. It does seem to just have a divine origin. I have no doubt that people will ascribe some of the events that we see described for us in the book of Revelation to climate change. So when you start seeing these really global and amazing natural disasters occur instead of some people saying oh man god must be really upset it's all written for us in this book it would be very easy for people in in the world to say no no no, this is all a result of climate change don't look up don't look to uh repent of anything that you're doing in particular this is just don't listen to those awful people in fact report them because they're enemies of the state yeah so no no no. The, the scripture doesn't have anything specific to say about climate change All right. Um, Question from Mac, who wants to know, 
when did dinosaurs exist and were they taken by the flood of Noah? Well, a lot of things were taken in the flood of Noah, but in regards to when did dinosaurs exist, obviously the uh, local flop of Jurassic Park Dominion has made the topic of dinosaurs not as popular as it used to be. Albeit, as it says, the usual mantra that we were told from the beginning was, oh, 65 million years ago, late Cretaceous Jurassic period, and so forth. But the problem is the way that they've gone about the dating of those fossils has been about as consistent as a slinky uh, that's been bent down the middle but still put on an escalator. It's gone all over the place and not necessarily in a straight line. Humorous visual aside, the uh, reports on both sides of this issue, meaning people who hold to the young earth theory, that if you add up the dates of the individuals in Genesis going from the time of Abraham to Adam, the, about six to uh, 10,000 years, if you don't assume any gaps in the time period itself, and those who hold to the general uh, steady state view that this earth is uh, billions upon trillions of years old and so forth, or the universe is at least, that the earth is around that ballpark as well. All of it is built from a paradigm that has to assume there is no God, that there is no creator, that these accounts in Genesis are allegorical, they're symbolic, that there's no reason for us to be told their names, dates, and ages, despite the fact that we were, because we already have this data by people who will fire us if we don't tow the party line. Now, that's a little bit of attribution of motive on my part, but the point still stands. If you want to hear both sides of the argument, obviously you've already heard the 65 million year argument argument from your schools and from popular media and from everyone who's allowed a voice in the public sphere. However, if you want to hear someone who has proven themselves consistently trustworthy and consistent, just carte blanche on this issue without fudging data, without evidence, I would recommend the Ministry of Answers in Genesis. If you literally look up the question that you asked of us, they are professional scientists, not just in the field of general science, but specifically paleontologists, specifically geologists and people who go into the carbon-14 and radiometric dating issues and so forth. They have fantastic articles addressing these very things and from a professional background. So much like with the crisis pregnancy center issue, I divert you to the experts, but the conclusion I've come to objectively after reading their research and also hearing the counter-arguments is Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead in a moment of human history, and he verified Genesis as history and quoted from it as if Adam was a real person, as well as those who followed after them. Now, obviously, we don't have uh, Jesus going into details about uh, Seth and Lamech, but we do have him referencing Adam as an actual historical person in the context he was presented in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. So for that reason, I would take Genesis at face value, and if that flies in the face of the people who are allowed to speak, that just makes me squint harder, because I think, especially in this day and age, we have more reason to question the people in authority, the experts, now more than ever. That being said, though, more information is always better, and we just don't have a lot of information, or at least not a lot of consistent information. Two bits of information that you can look at that kind of throw a monkey wrench in when they said the dinosaurs existed and when they would have, or even have, died off, is the interesting discovery of soft tissue in a Tyrannosaurus pelvis bone that was recovered from a fossil site, and instead of concluding, wow, uh, that doesn't last for the millions of years that we're attributing to this, this must have died within the last, oh, 200 years or so, that is interesting. But they came up with another explanation, hand-waved it and fired people, you, you get the gist. 
The other account that I would recommend looking at is the great deal of fraud that has been committed among these communities, specifically in those propagating the dating periods. I think that while Jurassic Park was a part of my childhood, it's uh, now become cringe, and I think that's all for the better. The point being made is this. Uh, when, were they taken away by the flood of Noah? Not necessarily, because they would have been among the sea, or the, not the sea creatures, some of them were, but the land creatures that were given provision to go on the ark as well. We see worldwide the cultures that survived the flood of Noah giving these consistent pictures and drawings and uh, artwork literally centered and inspired by what we would rightly assemble and conclude and deduce as dinosaurs that there are in fact these that's what dinosaur means by the way terrible lizards throughout human history and that just like anything else for example lions used to be indigenous to Europe why did they get wiped out well not because they were around 100 billion years ago it's because the Roman Colosseums needed entertainment and they were literally used as sport for until the point where they were extinct in that region of the world it's very 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 possible and reasonable this is an inference not a conclusion from data but an inference that they were hunted into extinction that the environments that they were used to when the earth was adjusting back from the flood, they weren't able to adapt to quickly enough that their, um, I guess, just familiarity with us was uh, so distant that we just don't know where they are anymore. Now note, majority of the dinosaurs in the world, we like to think they are all the 40-foot-tall colossuses like the Gigantosaurus or whatever. But the reality is most dinosaurs weren't any larger than a chicken. If we're talking about terrible lizards, there are plenty of dinosaurs today. We call them Komodo dragons. But the, the point being made is that if you want to look into this information, answers in Genesis, they have fantastic resources and a bi-weekly podcast that address these very issues. You can ask them live if you want to, uh, not to, I guess, uh, divert tension away from us, but they do it from three to four, so it's fine. That being said, uh, anything to add about dinosaurs? All right. No Dinobots from Petros. Thank you for the questions, your participation, and prayers, everyone. Um, here's a question that uh, I think might finish off. We got about four minutes, but our contradiction for the day, last one on the list, by the way, we did it. Um, did Jesus go to heaven after he died or when he ascended? According to Luke 23, 42 through 43, he, ascend, he went to heaven after he died. The passage mentions in addressing one of the thieves on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. But in John chapter 20 and verse 17, Jesus said to uh, Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb, uh, I have not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That was obviously after he died on the cross. So did he lie to the thief on the cross? Is this a dis uh, contradiction between the gospel passages? Or did the person who wrote this, like the 49 times before it, just not read the next verse? Uh, yeah, and it's an interesting contradiction, and one that actually does require a little bit of investigation. So uh, when Jesus is describing going to paradise with the thief on the cross, we have to understand exactly what Jesus was doing. So prior to his resurrection, no one could actually go into the presence of God, because sins, uh, the sins of the Old Testament saints had not yet been atoned for through Jesus. So they had to provide a atonement system through animal sacrifice that could never actually take away their sin, but it could provide a limited amount of covering 
as they anticipated the Messiah that would deliver them from their sin. And they existed in this area that some call Abraham's bosom, others would call it paradise. Uh, so it was an existence in which they were in rest, they were in peace, they were in happiness and joy. We see this, by the way, described for us by Jesus himself in the book that uh, this contradiction references, the book of Luke. And Jesus talks about a poor man named Lazarus who goes to this place, and he was receiving comfort from Abraham, but he wasn't in heaven. You don't see any mentions of God in that particular parable, in that narrative that Jesus is telling. And the reason why is because, like I said, people could not actually ascend into heaven until after the resurrection. So when Jesus assures the thief on the cross, today I will be with you in paradise, he meant it. He went down to Abraham's bosom, and in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us a little bit of insight into exactly what was happening during those three days. So it says that Jesus went down into Sheol, he went down into Abraham's bosom, the grave, and he actually preached the gospel. He provided comfort and assurance for those who are already in there. We don't really know exactly how this gospel presentation exactly worked, but we do know that those present there were then able to ascend with Jesus into heaven. So what we believe happened is after that three-day period occurred, Jesus rose again in his physical body. He was able to hang out with his disciples for around 40 days, and then when he ascended into heaven, that is when the rest of the saints ascended with him. So some people believe that they were able to ascend earlier, so at the moment of resurrection, they were able to go up into the presence of God. That's very plausible and I think very likely, but then Jesus was able to bodily ascend and be with them in heaven. So again, not a contradiction, you just have to understand what those terms mean, right? Yeah. So what Jesus heaven did. is with Jesus. That's right. So first of all, when dealing with these issues, just to fill out the rest of the time that we have, what is a contradiction? A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, that A does not equal non-A. If I do a contradiction, if I commit that fallacy, then I'm sating two things that in the same way and in the same sense are both claimed to be true and cancel themselves out. If I don't know what heaven is, then I can assume that this is a conflict of information. But if I take the time to understand the Bible's definition of heaven, then what he was speaking about to the thief on the cross and what he was speaking about to Mary Magdalene in the garden were two different things, him bodily ascending and people actually going to the presence of God. So just note those things, and as we always say, call their bluff, show me where and when, and know a little bit. If you can even buy some time and ask if I were to look that up and get back to you, would you uh, want to hear the answer? We always want sincerity, in which we all appreciate, and you guys sending in your questions to us. We'll look forward to dealing with more of them again tomorrow. Until then, this has been Peter Martin with Sean Richards and the Air Conditioning on A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.